the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Oakland provides for us a chilling window into anti-Semitism in the nation today. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. We'll hear from Israel's former ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren. It is something very similar to what we saw in the 1930s. It is the mass dehumanization of the Jewish people. Elon Musk visits Israel, providing some healthy clarity. There's no choice but to kill those who insist on murdering civilians. There's no choice. We'll look at the message the civilized world ought to have heard from October 7th. Hamas has served notice that there is no point having any more discussions about a partition because they're not interested in the partition. Yeah. They're interested in taking over all of the territory of Israel. Plus, a surprise election in the Netherlands. A win for the right. Hurt Wilders and his Freedom Party win with the chance that he could become prime minister. I mean, the Netherlands shocked the Netherlands, I guess, with this election result. We'll look at the broader story of what we're seeing in Europe with Victor Davis Hansen. It's coming, this anger at these elites, what they're doing. All this and more. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. It's good to be back. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And follow me on Twitter, at Hugh Hewitt. Follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. We'll begin in Oakland, California, where on Monday this week, the city council voted unanimously to call for a permanent ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. A ceasefire that would, of course, allow the terrorists to remain exactly where they are, in the terror tunnels of Gaza. Typically, I couldn't care less about the foreign policy of the Oakland City Council, but Councilman Dan Kalb tried to insert language that would at least have condemned Hamas that effort was rejected 6-2. to two. But the comments that his effort generated were chilling. There's not been beheadings of babies and rapings. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. Calling Hamas a terrorist organization is ridiculous, racist, and plays into genocidal propaganda that is flooding our media and that we should be doing everything possible to combat. I support the right of Palestinians to resist occupation, including through Hamas, the armed wing of the unified Palestinian resistance. As an Arab, asking with this context to condemn Hamas is very anti-Arab racist. The notion that this was a massacre of Jews is a fabricated narrative. Many of those killed on October 7th, including children, were killed by the IDF. An amendment condemning Hamas is bald propaganda meant to... To hear them complain about Hamas violence is like listening to a wife beater complain when his wife finally stands up and fights back. Question. Did anyone else notice that those who oppose this resolution are old white supremacists? There's been a lot of atrocity propaganda ranging from claims of beheaded babies to mass rape. Hamas is not a terrorist organization just because the U.S. and Israel um, deems it so. Hamas is a resistance organization that is fighting for the liberation of Palestinian people and their land. I turn to a longtime regular on my program, Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States. How do you react to that? I think it gives the title Oakland A's a whole new meaning. Ha! 
<laughs> yes. But it's not limited to Oakland. Something has happened to the American information system to pollute so many people's minds into mouthing. I mean, you can come up with we need a two-state pollution, we need a solution, we need, a, um, uh, we need to condemn Israel for their policies of occupation. But to deny that the Hamas massacre took place is 9-11 denialism. Or that Hamas is a, is a national liberation movement and that, uh, that it's somehow linked to, you know, to uh, the fight against white privilege and white supremacy. Um, yes, this is madness. But it's not just madness. Uh, it is something very similar to what we saw in the 1930s. It is the mass dehumanization of the Jewish people. And uh, I, I think I said on your show the other day that, that in a certain way, the Holocaust never ended. Uh, because, yes, the gas changer ended and Nazi Germany ended, but the conditions that created the Holocaust are very much still extant. And you heard it tonight. That's an example. Let me ask you a question. If, if tomorrow they started lining up Jews in Israel, 7 million Jews, and put us in gas chambers, would anybody, would anybody in that forum have said anything other than, wow, they had it coming to them, and perhaps this is even a good thing? And by the way, does anybody imagine in their wildest dreams that if Hamas hadn't been checked on the morning of October 7th, that they would have continued killing, continued raping, continued beheading until they had killed every Jew in the state of Israel. And that's seven million. They would have outdone the, they would have outdone the Nazis by a million. And, and they'd still be called a national liberation movement by these people. So we're, we're in a realm, we're in a 1930s type movement. And um, to me, I mean, I, you know, I've been talking to you every week, several times a week from this entire trip across the United States, a month long, about 13, 14 cities. I've seen this across the United States, and I must tell you, Hugh, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, there was a State Department official, I think his name was Breckenridge Long, during the uh, run-up to World War II, uh, that America wasn't in the war, who prevented Jews from getting out of Germany. He actively condemned Jews to their death. And I'm afraid in the Democratic Party, and I I know you're not partisan, so I'm going to say this, Joe Joe Biden is in favor of a two-state solution, but it's within the Democratic Party. He needs a two-state solution. He needs a two-state solution for his anti-Semitic wing and a a second state for his pro-Israel wing. It can't be done, Dr. Warren. You can't reconcile these two completely. You're either a Zionist and you stand with Israel, or you are an anti-Zionist. And like you say, you're supporting a a climate of hatred towards Jews, which I've never seen, and I'm 67. I think it's, it, it's a state of, of not of a solution he needs. He needs a, a state of sanity. And, uh, and someone has to come out and call this. And this, is, this calls for moral clarity, always clarity, clarity, clarity. It's so difficult. It's so difficult. Have you heard about this recent uh, uh, rumor going around that Hamas is willing to exchange all of the hostages in return for a ceasefire? Yes, and I think the Biden administration yesterday tried to push that on Israel by putting out a tweet that said you're playing into Hamas's hands. Joe Biden tweet. It wasn't by the president. It's his private account. Some staff from the White House said Israel's playing into Hamas's hands. I just couldn't believe it. Well, last night at this event in Atlantic City, I asked the audience. I heard about this just before going up, and I asked, okay, say you're the prime minister of Israel. Would you go for this deal? And everybody stood up and said, no, 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 no. You know, that was an American audience. It was very interesting, an interesting moment. Um, but there Hamas really is trying to get us. They're cutting to the quick. And this, they're making their ultimate move. And as I suggested in that uh, one of the, the clarity articles, in the, in the Sophie's Choice clarity articles, I say, okay, we say yes, but on one condition. Every single member of Hamas gets on a boat, right? But they won't accept that, will they, Dr. Ryan? No, of course not. But that, that should be our reply, though. 
And uh, otherwise, you know, it looks, hey, look, we're not getting this. We're not getting the hostages back. But still, it is an it is unspeakably difficult challenge for the state of Israel. Today, baby Kafir and his sister, the two reds, they call them in the Israeli press. Yeah. Uh, there are only eight children left on the hostage list. There are 10 coming out today. If those children are not in that, do you think Israel ends the ceasefire? Because if they don't, that makes them the ultimate bargaining chips. Every release raises the price. And um, at some point, I've been saying this on, on, with you for now uh, at least a week or two, that uh, at some point Israel's going to have to make the Sophie's choice because Hamas will not release all the hostages. Notice he's not releasing a lot of Americans, too. He's trying to, they're trying to drive a wedge between the United States and Israel all the time. Um, is that uh, that choice is coming. And unless, of course, you can convince Hamas to get on that boat. Otherwise, there is no choice because you have to destroy Hamas. We can't we can't survive without you destroying Hamas. So it's going to be did, did somewhere along your, the line. It's going to be the hostages or survival. Did any of your sources give you any idea of how long the war will require to destroy Hamas when the ceasefire ends? And I listened to Gallant yesterday, the defense minister. They're not going anywhere. They're going to finish Hamas no matter how long it takes. How long do you think it will take? Well, my assistants have told me that they're, they will be in the army to at least uh, to at least January. These are people who went into the army on October eighth, uh, so that is a long time to be away from your families and be away from your work, and um, and it's exhausting as you heard emotionally, physically, every way, and traumatic. So that's a long time, and I think that's just this this tranche of uh, of reservists. Listen, if I had my druthers, if I had my druthers, we would freeze the situation in Gaza right now, keep it in the status quo, and we would we would pivot north, because I don't know you, I don't know how we go back to the status quo ante with Hezbollah. Also this week, Elon Musk visited Israel, a visit that came on the heels of a posting on X that generated criticism that Musk himself was flirting with anti-Semitic thought, a criticism he completely rejected. He's not. His message upon visiting Israel at war was actually quite clear. It was uh, certainly been um, a day, I would say an emotionally difficult day uh, to see the places where people were murdered. I just did a talk with the, the Prime Minister, and um, I think there's, I mean, obviously there, there, there are three things that need to happen uh, in, in the Gaza situation. I mean, there's no choice but to kill those who insist on uh, murdering civilians. There's no exactly. choice. Media mogul Lord Conrad Black once owned the Jerusalem Post. He was a guest of Sebastian Gorka. What is the significance as, as the former chairman of the Hollinger Group, as a man who understands the media, who's a regular contributor to a serious outlets, to have a man who's not a publisher, although a social media owner when it comes to Twitter, a very successful CEO as well, to make that statement? Isn't that rather unusual? I guess it is, but these are also unusual circumstances. Uh, I mean, the, the atrocities that Hamas committed on October 7, that they're not only not embarrassed about, but are loudly proclaiming that they were entirely justified acts against an occupation, as if there was no right of a Jewish state to exist. It seems after... 25 years, in any day of which they could have had their own state, if they were prepared yeah. to share the territory with the Jewish state, they've sort of thrown down the mask and, and acted in a way that shows that they will never accept a Jewish state. And so it's an escalation. 
Uh, and and I think Elon Musk. I mean, he he's he's not a specialist in these areas, but he's an extremely intelligent and important and influential man. Uh, I, I think he's expressing it correctly. I think Hamas has served notice that there is no point having any more discussions about a partition because they're not interested in a partition. Yeah. They're interested in taking over all of the territory of Israel, which, of course, is impossible and not going to happen. Uh, and and uh, therefore, there's nothing more to talk about. And if they're not prepared to talk and only prepared to engage in acts of violence, I believe that what uh, Mr. Musk is saying is is what others, including myself, have been saying, that you can't reach a compromise with people who will not reach a compromise. And if they're going to engage not only in acts of violence, but uh, of a particularly abominable and atrocious nature uh, directed against young people and the elderly and women and so forth in the most disgusting manner, then the solution is obvious. We have to get rid of them. Coming up. A victory for the right in Netherlands. I mean, the Netherlands shocked the Netherlands, I guess, with this election result. Nobody saw it coming. It was an absolute landslide victory for Geert Builders. One in four Dutch people went out to vote for the far right. So have we shocked the world? Absolutely. When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. The voters in the Netherlands gave the watching world quite the surprise in their nation's recent election. Here at Wilders, the firebrand populist who many thought would never emerge as a leading figure in Dutch politics, was the clear winner last week. His Freedom Party won 10 seats more than the nearest competitor. It's an enormous upset. Though Wilders still needs to assemble a governing coalition before he could become prime minister, and many are skeptical about that, Eva Vladnigerbroek, a vocal conservative activist in the Netherlands, was surprised. Eva was a guest of Charlie Kirk. There was some shocking news from the Netherlands about this populist nationalist movement. We saw it in Argentina. Is it also happening in the Netherlands? Did the Netherlands shock the world? 
<laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Netherlands shocked the Netherlands, I guess, with this election result. Nobody saw it coming. It was an absolute landslide victory for Geert Wilders. And uh, I cannot stress like how big this is for Dutch standards. He won by a large margin. We have a very scattered political landscape. And the PVV is, uh, as you said, a, a nationalist, populist, right-wing party that has been, well, I mean, Geert Wilders has been a political outlier for as long as he's had this party, so for about 17 years. And uh, they're, they're labeled as far-right, you know, fascist, Nazis, you know the whole spiel. And now uh, one in four Dutch people went out to vote for the far-right. So have we shocked the world? Absolutely. So what, what do you think are the main factors driving this? I've known of Geert for quite some time, and they try to put him into political irrelevancy for years. He's too fringe, he's this, but he never gave up. So kind of walk us through the background and what are the events or the issues that contributed to this shock election? Well, the number one issue is immigration. So Geert Wilders is a staunch anti-immigration politician. He's taken this stance uh, basically on his own for the past 20 years. He's uh, criticized Islam heavily. He said that, well, the Netherlands, you know, should be Netherlands first uh, and uh, the Dutch should come first. And he's he's in favor of closing the borders. He's in favor of the Dutch equivalent of a Brexit. So our next it. And uh, he has really paid a very high price for his criticism uh, on Islam specifically. He has bodyguards following around for, well, the entire day. He can't go anywhere by himself. There have been multiple fatwas issued against his life. So this is a man truly with skin in the game when it comes to his, uh, his points of view on immigration. And I think that the majority of the Dutch people, you know, have had an a more anti-immigration stance, I would say, than the VVD, the ruling party, has had. And they've been in power for the past 30 years. So it, it, it almost seemed like enough was enough, you know, and especially with the events of October 7th and uh, all the, the rallies that we've seen in Europe where lots of people came out waving Taliban flags, waving Al-Qaeda flags. I think that has kind of like awoken the masses to the fact that this integration process that we had been promised for the longest time was actually a lie. The recent election in the Netherlands is only one piece of some very interesting dynamics that we have seen elsewhere on the European continent. Here's Victor Davis Hansen, joined with Jack Baller from VDH Podcast. Uh, Victor, you have a, an essay, Can Europe Become Western Again? And it begins, for the first time in a millennium, Europe no longer plays a critical role in promoting Western civilization nor in world history at large. That's quite, I'll call it an accusation for the sake of discussion. Victor, tell us about yeah, what's true. I mean, since, 1940, since 1945, Europe has surrendered its influence. And it's really quite striking because if you think about it, its population, the greater Eurozone, is much bigger than ours. It's about 800 million people. And if you think about it, the EU and the Eurozone, I should say, has a second largest GDP in the world. Uh, after It's larger than China's. And when you look at uh, science and technology and industry, it's still among the leaders. So you would think that it would exercise a prominent role in world affairs, but I don't know whether it was the trauma of the two world wars or it was its long held of infatuation with socialism, but it has now, its economy is stagnant. Its energy policy is suicidal. It's 
foregone using clean coal or natural gas or oil. It, it doesn't spend 2%, I think six countries do, that's it, of its budget on its self-defense. If the United States didn't help it, I think Putin could go all the way through to the Thames. So all of its deeply held beliefs, the consensus, whether it's open borders, unlimited immigration, redistribution, disarmament, they fail. This article got a lot of heat, Jack, because a lot of yeah. people wrote me and said, what's wrong with you? Europe is over. They deserve it. They're gone, Victor. They're just wimps. They're socialists. They're worthless. They hate us. And I th and so my article was, yeah, I know that. And I don't like that. I like to bring them back in as a partner. I mean, they caused two world wars, but they also helped us end them. And there was something majestic about the French army at one time and the British intelligence agencies and, my God, uh, the Norwegian, brave Norwegians and the Greeks who died in droves to try to fight the Nazis. So there were, it's a great place and you need it as a partner. And it would exercise a lot of authority in the world rather right. than be anti-American all the time and join with people who hate the West. The thing about Europeans are this. When you meet a conservative European, they are some of the most articulate, bright, inductive people in the world. They really are. They have to be because they've been so beleaguered. But I do interviews with a lot of them from Italy and from Switzerland, and they're better informed than our conservatives. Yeah. And they're very brave people, and they're starting to be in the ascendance. People are starting to listen to them. Because it doesn't work what the left did to Europe. It does not work. So we look at these horrible riots, these right-wing people that are rioting all over Ireland. Okay. And that's a terrible thing what they're doing. But when you have the leaders of the government of Ireland saying there's too many white people, and it's 98% white originally, there's too many of them, and we're going to let in 20% of the population is not going to be born in Ireland and then you demonized your own people. And then an immigrant, supposedly from Algeria, tries to cut the throat of children. People get angry because they know nothing's going to happen. So, yes, they are barbaric. They're savage. They're breaking the law. But they represent something. And that is the anger at an elite who is adopting policies that are suicidal to the, right. yeah. to the body, the body of the right. citizenry. And that's why people are angry. They have no voice. Right. These well, unelected people and elected, but also a lot of them are unelected in bureaucracies. It's it's coming, this anger at, at, at these elites, what they're doing. The, so far, their control of the media, of academia, the corporate boardroom, entertainment, popular culture, foundations, has able to give the left power and to have open borders. Open borders and institutional control are the duality that allow the left to stay in power without popular support. And I don't think that's going to be sustainable either. I think finally the sheer numbers of people is going to overwhelm them that are getting angry. Let me know quick before we go to break. Victor's podcast is now available at the Salem Podcast Network. Coming up, Gaza after Hamas. Anybody who takes over will be seen as taking over riding Israeli tanks. 
when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Israel, over the course of this past week, has been on a temporary pause, a ceasefire, as we have seen a number of hostages released in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. Israel has been under pressure to, first, extend the ceasefire, and second, to make clear what will happen to Gaza after Hamas. We'll start with that second point, Gaza after Hamas. I was pleased to welcome Haviv Redigur, Senior Analyst with the Times of Israel, on my program this week. He's an Israeli born in Jerusalem. He's also a very good journalist and analyst, one of the clearest thinkers on what is happening in the current war. I have friends in the UAE. I have friends in Bahrain. I know that there are moderate Gulf states. Elon Musk referred to them. But they're standing back because it's such a nightmare of poisoned minds. Is there any scenario where you see them stepping forward to run the strip on behalf of the Palestinians until the Palestinians develop a new elite that will do it for them? No. Anybody who takes over Gaza after Israel removes Hamas, assuming the war continues the way it has gone, assuming Israel is as implacable as I think it is, and assuming Hamas is removed, anybody who tries to take over in the immediate aftermath of that will be seen by Palestinians, not just in Gaza. In Gaza, they'll probably like a new regime. They hate Hamas. We have polls on this. But in the West Bank, they love Hamas for what it's doing to Israel. And because out of a sense of empathy for Gaza, the West Bank doesn't want what's happening to Gaza to happen in the West Bank. But nevertheless, the Palestinian diaspora, American Palestinian activists have all found ways to support Hamas, despite kind of understanding that in Gaza, the perception is Hamas brought this devastation on them. But anybody who takes over will be seen as taking over um, riding Israeli tanks. In other words, Israel will have be, will be, even if they don't like Israel, even if their politics aren't pro-Israel, they'll be seen as coming in uh, at Israel's behest. There has to be an indigenous Palestinian political solution after Hamas. Hamas, of course, will fight tooth and nail to prevent anything like that from ever happening. Do you think this matters to Hezbollah in the north, that they see the implacability of Israel? Do you think that it will deter them, not only now, but in the future, from attempting what Hamas actually executed, the massacre of Israelis en masse, without distinction between child and adult, civilian and military as Hezbollah watching and learning, do you think, Haviv Redigur? Absolutely. Something even more interesting is happening. Iran has taken steps to ensure control over Hezbollah decision-making so that Hezbollah doesn't accidentally escalate to a point where it faces a war. Iran wants to hold Hezbollah in its arsenal, in its quiver, so to speak. The purpose of Hezbollah in Iranian grand strategy is that when the Israel-Iran war turns kinetic, right now it's a bunch of spies and bombs and secrets and cyber, when it turns into a kinetic ground, you know, air war, but, but actual bombardments of each other, Hezbollah is a force multiplier for Iran. And so it doesn't want Hezbollah lost to, for that next war, right? 
Israel would like Hezbollah not to be a threat in the north. And so it doesn't really mind if Hezbollah escalates to the point of a war accidentally. So yes, I think Hezbollah is deterred. I think Iran is deterred, but it's deterred tactically, not strategically. Strategically, it is doing nothing but building for that next war. And all of Lebanon is watching helpless as its fate is being sealed by Hezbollah doing so. Now, we have leadership elites in all of those, Khamenei and the IRGC in Iran. We've got Nasrallah and Hezbollah. And then we have the Sinwar fellow. My first question, is Sinwar mad? I mean, does he actually think he's winning or that this was a good strategy? Or is he just an evil, depraved soul who wants to kill? Or does he actually have intelligence and Hitlerian sort of grasp of tactics and strategy, however flawed they were in the Second World War? Or is he just nuts? Yeah, no, he's a deeply strategic man, a deeply strategic thinker. Um, I keep sending people to look at the FLN in Algeria, who uh, in an eight-year war with tremendous terrorism and abuse, kicked out the French colonialists after 130 years. Well over a million French citizens had to leave Algeria in 1962 uh, when the FLN won that war. And, and that response to that war among Palestinians was the founding of the PLO. In other words, the, a lot of the Palestinian national movement and, the, and this generation of Palestinian leaders grew up on the example of Algeria kicking out the French. And one of the lessons, two things kicked out the French. One is that the terrorism raised the cost for staying beyond what the French were willing to pay. And the second was that the French military response, the French probably killed half a million people in bombardments of villages, and, and there were literal torture dungeons established in Algiers um, in, which, in which FLN fighters were just disappeared into. The French response was so cruel that that cruelty undermined the French ability to explain back in France, back in Paris, what the heck they were doing in Algeria. And so both sides, the cruelty imposed by the terrorists and the cruelty forcing the colonialists to be cruel, both of those things undermine the colonialists, and that's how Sinwar, I think, understands what's going on. He thinks that Israel is going to be weakened by killing our civilians, and he thinks that Israel is going to be weakened by forcing Israel to cut through Palestinian civilians to get to Hamas and not being able to explain that to Israelis. Coming up, sunk cost. The only story the Palestinians have to tell about themselves is that story of massive terrorism. We continue with Haviv Redigur. When the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Critics of Israel today, or perhaps I should say the loud noise we hear from the streets of American cities, try to make the absurd claim that contemporary Israel is a colonial state. Settler colonialism is the label. The problem is the label genuinely does not work. It doesn't fit. Let's pick up on my conversation with Aviv Redigur of the Times of Israel. Aviv, I heard you make the argument about the yeah. French analogy before, and I've been reading Daniel Gordis's book on Israel, and I know a lot more about Zionism now. There is no France for the Frenchman to go to. The Israelis can't go anywhere. That's where I see it breaking down. Does Sinwar really think... He can move Israel? 
Yes, he thinks that. And it's the tragedy of the Palestinian cause for a century. They have been talking about us since before they called themselves Palestinians. If you go back, you know, in 1914, you have these newspapers where they talk about themselves as Palestinians. But 10 years before that, they, they don't really. It's just how borders were drawn. I'm not making a statement about Palestinian identity or nationalism. But I'm just saying that literally since the 1910s, they have seen Jews immigrate very slowly, very gradually. And they have talked about us as colonialists and understood us as imperialists and understood us in all these words and all this verbiage. And they never really developed a theory of mind of us. They don't really think of us as people who think and feel and experience. They think of us as this kind of, in 30 years of peace talks, no Palestinian leader has ever spoken to the Israeli people. Um, Hamas has a theory of why we will be destroyed. It doesn't actually have an understanding of our internal politics and experience. So for example, what do the Palestinians not understand about their anti-colonial strategy of terrorism? They don't understand that roughly 800,000 Israeli Jews if they go back to where they came from or where their grandparents came from, would be going back to Baghdad. Now, I don't think they've had or that Yemen. conversation with a Baghdadi. Or, or, or Yemen. Yeah. Or, or, it's or, half of us would be going back to the Arab world. People that I admire and respect, Tom Holland posted a note that this is all began with Arthur Balfour. That's so ignorant. It began with the Romans destroying the Second Temple. But I, I don't know what to do about this when smart people say stupid things about Israel. How do you respond to that? What do you attribute that to? If you believe the affairs of the world are set down by tiny elites sipping champagne in, you know, halls of power in, in Geneva, then you think that Balfour created the Jewish state because the British government, because of politics having to do with the Americans in World War I, wanted, and a little bit of anti-Semitism, wanted to get rid of its Jews, created the Jewish state. The imperialist Britain didn't give the Zionist movement the territory. It was used by the Zionist movement. And when the Jews were fleeing Russia, the Zionist movement used what are called the capitulations during the Ottoman periods, which are immunities given to Russian citizens in the Ottoman Empire to advance Zionism. And when German Jews showed up, they used whatever was available. Small nations trying to survive will use whatever international politics they can to try to survive. And if you then conclude that international politics created them, well, that's very silly. By the time the UN voted in 1947 to establish a state of Israel, the Jews were not moving anywhere. And the Jews of the Arab world were about to be kicked out en masse in the most perfect ethnic cleansing of the 20th century to almost the very last man, woman, and child across 20 countries. And so you think that if the UN hadn't voted that way, what, what would have happened to these people? They would have evaporated, disappeared. Nobody would have had to think about them. Uh, the Jews kept in the DP camps after World War II for three years. They're behind barbed wire, right? American high school kids are taught that the Americans showed up and liberated everybody. But Israeli Jews know that their grandparents were still behind barbed wire on German soil three years later. And that barbed wire was patrolled by British and American soldiers because the world didn't want them. So they had nowhere to go. The Jews created Israel. The world didn't want the Jews, and the Jews' response was Israel. And no, it wasn't Arthur Balfour. Is there any way to teach that effectively given not just social media, but the general collapse of the willingness to learn history apart from identity politics now? I'm Israeli. I was raised to think that it doesn't matter what the world thinks. I don't know how to teach the world. I know me, and I'm not going anywhere. How complicit is every adult in Gaza with this horror? There is no question that every adult is not complicit. There is no question that huge numbers of Gazans are absolutely the victims of this moment. 
profoundly victimized by Hamas. Hamas murders, Hamas oppresses. The victims, the, the, the hostages, include Muslim young men and young women who have been held incommunicado for 52 days. Uh, Aisha al-Ziadne is a 17-year-old Israeli Muslim Bedouin girl held by Hamas for the last 52 days with no sign of life. There is no question that Hamas is as much an enemy you know, I think Hamas is an enemy of the Palestinian cause in sort of grand strategic ways. But individually, specifically, it is a horrific, oppressive, disastrous, murderous organization to Palestinians. And we have polls from October 6th, literally the day before, that showed that Palestinians despise Hamas, not for any issue having to do with Israelis, just for its own internal oppression in Gaza. Having said that, there is huge support among ordinary Palestinians for the October 7 massacre. There is huge support for inflicting pain on the Israelis. There is huge support for holding hostages to get out Palestinian prisoners. And that is true. And that has always been true. The Palestinian political world doesn't have another story. There are essentially two ways that nations have achieved independence in the 20th century and in the 21st century. One way was anti-colonial terrorism, and it worked. It worked in some places. It worked spectacularly. That is the path the Palestinians have chosen disastrously for them year after year after year, generation after generation. There is the other way, which is nonviolence, nonviolence that robs the enemy of their excuses robs, in this case, it would rob the Israelis of the explanation for the military rule in the West Bank, for example. That path the Palestinians have never chosen. There have been very small movements within the Palestinians that have tried things like that, but they've always happened alongside massive sustained violence. So it doesn't work on the Israelis if, if it's a tiny movement next to a massively violent one. Um, the only story the Palestinians have to tell about themselves is that story of massive terrorism and violence. I, I want to if I may, I'm sorry to talk so long, but I want to say one more thing. The Palestinians are having trouble getting away from Hamas's strategy, from terrorism, as a liberation strategy, no matter how much it fails them. And the reason is what economists call the sunk costs problem. Yep. The sunk cost problem is when you have invested so much in one direction that to change direction becomes impossible, even if it's failing. This is true of companies and this is true of national movements. And so if it's true that terrorism can't work on us because we have nowhere to run away to. The whole anti-colonial premise, you want to call me a colonialist as a curse, fine, enjoy it. But tactically, it won't work. If that's true, then every martyr, as they call them, shaheed, every act that has ever been, every single suicide bomber the Palestinians have ever produced has something named for them, some street, some soccer field in Palestine. Every one of those stories becomes a story of, of folly and stupidity and murder instead of heroic martyrdom and liberation. And so to not wow. lose, to not all the sacrifices of the Palestinian story become empty. Coming up. The point that Hamas is making is this is what will be done if you are an informant. So it was an attempt to terrorize the Palestinian population. A few more minutes with Aviv Redigur in the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and amber alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 528. 86 standard message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. The Gaza Strip has, for very good reason, 
been the focus of Israel and the world over the course of these past two months. It's a terrorist nest. The tunnels are deep. The terrorists are in the thousands. But the threat of Islamist terrorism generally, and Hamas terror specifically, is also a threat in Judea and Samaria, the region commonly known as the West Bank, but it's Judea and Samaria. Let's catch a few more minutes of my conversation with Haviv Redigur. I saw that Hamas, and I try and use the analogy of Gestapo because Americans culturally understand what it is. Their Gestapo operated in the West Bank on the weekend and executed two Palestinians on the West Bank in rather horrific fashion. How deep is the Gestapo, the enforcement of Hamas, in the West Bank? In the West Bank, it's a collection of um, scattered militias deeply disrupted by Israel that occasionally can produce a terror attack, occasionally can take over some neighborhood in some Palestinian city, but don't actually have the capacity to do more than sort of pinpoint terrorize. The point of those deaths of those two young men We have no evidence that they were actually in any way informants on Israel. There are a lot of Palestinians who hate Hamas, and they inform on Hamas to Israel, not because they love Israel. But we don't know anything about that. We've tried to find out. It's all intelligence. Who knows what we could even find out if it were true, but we, we don't have any evidence. But the point, even if they were not actually, the point that Hamas is making is this is what will be done if you are an informant. So it was an attempt to terrorize the Palestinian population. You noted that international law benefits the powerful. That's absolutely true. I took it. I teach it. You're absolutely correct about that. But I do wonder whether or not there's someone who might not return Palestine and Adenauer to the nations that benefit from international law. Because if they ever did, there would be arguments that could be made about how much of the West Bank they should receive in the final allotment of the two-state solution, if there is a two-state solution. Is there an Adenauer? Is there anyone like that? Uh, A Yoshida? Anybody? that you can identify, or does identifying them endanger them? There are such people. There are activists, phenomenal activists. I I won't name them because if I name them, uh, it'll only hurt their PR. But there are activists on the ground working on building out civil society. I once spoke with a Palestinian activist, no fan of Israel, spent some time in an Israeli jail, who said to me, I can't come to peace talks with you. I can't even sit at the table because... When we sign something, I don't have the state institutions to implement it and ensure it and control it. I have to build out my society. I'll meet you at that table in 20 years, and I'll be stronger, and you'll be sorry because he'll negotiate, squeeze more out of me, right? That that was how he put it, me being Israel, not me, Chaviv. And he goes around the West Bank establishing literally women's knitting circles, literally just walking around the West Bank establishing civil society because you can't trust the West Bank leadership of the of, of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, of course, you can't trust Hamas. And so what he is doing is actually going around trying to establish a social life, a, a civil society in Palestine that can build that can be built out. Uh, there are such people. Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. If you're enjoying our coverage, make it a point to share our podcast with a friend. Send them to our website, townhallreview.com. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Shubin, Producers David Pouchon, Alex Perez, Harley Eide, and of course, Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.